Welcome to Where's Home Really with me, Jimmy Famarewa, a podcast about culture and community and a place for conversations about heritage, identity, and how we all discover and define who we really are. Each week, I'm speaking to people from the world of music, entertainment, food, and the arts about their interpretation of home. What does it look like to them? Who helps them find it? And what are the things that make them feel safe, at ease, and anchored when their lives take them all over the globe? We do this by asking them about four key elements, which are a person, a place, a phrase, and a plate. So for me, one would be a chocolate malted powder that you use to make sort of hot drinks or cold drinks called Milo or Milo as we pronounce it in Nigeria for some reason. The sight of a green kind of tin of it with a kind of boy on it kicking a football is just absolutely the sight of like my childhood and even now if I see a tin of it in a cupboard or in a shop I am just instantly brought back there and I really remember uh, heaping ladled teaspoons of it onto uh, ice cream with my cousins when we were just kind of trying to entertain ourselves during the endless summer holidays. So that's one for me, but I'm really looking forward to hearing what today's guest comes up with. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around the idea that I will not vote for the first British Asian Prime Minister. I think if you told me when I was a kid that this would come to pass, I don't think I would have ever been able to wrap my mind around that idea. Today's guest is a comedian, TV presenter, political commentator and podcast host, born in South London to Indian parents. He began experimenting with comedy while at Durham University as part of a double act and member of the sketch group, The Durham Review. He has been performing solo since 2012 when he made his debut at the Edinburgh Fringe. We've been finding out for the last decade who he is and where he stands on the issues of the day with his work as a comedian overlapping with his interest in news and current affairs. In 2015, he was announced as the host of the Radio 4 series News Jack and in 2020, he was the host of the first three series of The News Quiz alongside Angela Barnes and Andy Zaltzman. And of course, there was the BBC's brilliant and contentiously cancelled satirical news show, The Mash Report. He currently hosts the fantastically funny political news podcast, Pod Save the UK. Nish Kumar, welcome. Hi, Jimmy. Oh, How are you? What an intro. What an intro. They take it out of me. How was that for you? I think you hit all the main bases. Yeah, I, li I quite like the phrase experimenting with comedy because um, <laughs> I think probably it's what I'm still doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's got a kind of laboratory vibe as well, maybe. It's just, you know, throwing things around, pouring pouring solutions into, uh, into different vials and seeing what explodes. Yeah, you know, and look, some of the experimentations will not be successful, Jimmy. Some of them are dangerous. Some of them are quite volatile and explosive, but we'll come to those, I'm sure. I always start by kind of throwing the title of the show back to the guest and just getting their instant reaction to that idea of where's home really? What does it make you think of that question, that idea? What are the things that it sparks for you? Well, it definitely says family to me a lot. I think it's quite an interesting thing, right? Because I live in the same city as my parents and my partner and I live together and we live in the same city as her parents. So for me, a lot of it is London and family. And the only reason I think that that's notable is because 
both our sets of parents are not from this country. And I remember my partner saying to me a few years ago, like, should we leave? Like, should, <laughs> because that's that's sort of what, what our parents did. They left their homes, they left their families, they went to a different country and tried to make a life for themselves there. And it seems noteworthy that we have both continued to live in the same city as our parents. So, you know, for me, a lot of it is family. For me, a lot of it is London. Whenever I talk about London, I'm sort of hesitant because I know all the problems of London and I know all the issues and I understand that it's become a sort of Disneyland for oligarchs in the last, you know, 20 years. And I, I know what the issues are of the city and i definitely don't subscribe to this idea that it's like the best place in the world it might not even be the best place in england and the only thing that i can describe the only way i can categorize it is whenever i travel a lot within the uk and i travel a lot around the world i'm very fortunate in my job to do that and i love to do it but whenever i come back to london it's like taking the top button off your jeans after you've eaten too much at a buffet <laughs> Now, that analogy probably, Jimmy, says more about me than it does about anything else, that that's my go-to reference point. Oh, I can't wait to get onto the... I can't wait to get onto the food. I can't wait to get onto the food. Just, <laughs> little just preview a, there. Just a basic lack of discipline uh, with, with a buffet. Like, I can't be left with a buffet because it just... It's all there, you know? Like, it's... I, I actually, when I'm touring, I, t I try where possible to avoid the breakfast buffet because I just, I, it'll write off my day. I, d I don't have the ability to say I have had enough food. I really love that idea of it being a bit anomalous. Like if your parents traveled and like left the country and there was a lot of movement and to be quite happily settled somewhere, like almost feels a little bit unusual like it's not you know it's kind of a break in the line and a disruption of that but I totally get what you're saying and I'd love to hear what your choice of place is is it you know South London is kind of where you were where you were born and born and raised essentially grew up in Croydon as I understand it so where are you going to go for well I'll go for South London I'll go for a kind of route around Croydon like the kind of fit between Croydon and Brixton you know which is where I have lived for most of my life. I was born in Tooting and I grew up in Croydon. And I kind of grew up in Croydon in the era between Kate Moss and Stormzy. <laughs> I, I guess Kate Moss was kind of already like quite famous. Yeah. Because she was famous yeah. from when she was like 17 or something. Yeah. So she was yeah. already very famous in the kind of early 90s. And now obviously Stormzy is Stormzy. But I grew up in the period between that where really all we were known for was being a shithole with trams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but you're absolutely right. There was this historic dead zone, wasn't there? And I guess one of the points about Kate Moss in particular being from Croydon was how weird and anomalous it was. It almost seemed to point out like, oh my God, it's mad. She's from Croydon. Like, you know, it, there's just been this this baggage and this stigma attached to it for such a long time. In 2019, I was in the crowd at Glastonbury when Stormzy headlined and, you know, did this kind of, you know, sort of historic kind of era defining set, you know, as a celebration of 
black British music and black British culture. And when, you know, when he came out in the stab vest with the blacked out Union Jack, it was one of those kind of moments watching it in person where you sort of thought, I am watching something of major cultural significance that people will talk about for decades to come. Like it, it really felt like it felt very extraordinary to be there. I don't feel like in retrospect, we now realize it was a moment of cultural significance. We all knew what we were watching as it was happening. But I have to tell you that the moments before he came on stage, they were playing a kind of montage of images of train stations <laughs> in the Croydon area. And I was watching it with my friend Rose Matafeo, who's a great comedian and my, my old flatmate and who is from New Zealand. And I had to explain to it, you have no idea how funny it is that I'm seeing Thornton Heath <laughs> in enormous letters <laughs> flying across the pyramid stage. You don't know why it's funny that West Norwood is currently... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, being beamed to, to, uh, to the yeah, thousands be, be, of and like millions, like people are going to watch this revelers. for years and years. Someone is going to have to explain to them what Selhurst is. You know, like that, it, it was it was so funny to me that that was on that scale, you know. What is it about that area and I think that's really interesting, you know, between Croydon and Brixton, because there are these kind of almost these amorphous areas that are kind of a bit of both and in South London, especially, and are kind of affected by lots of different, you know, headwinds and cultural kind of uh, influences. So what what is it that that area like represents and has represented to you? Well, I would say. I think there's two things, I think that for all its myriad flaws and problems, the biggest thing that growing up in Croydon gave me, you know, when I see people say multiculturalism doesn't work or multiculturalism is disruptive for social cohesion or you can't have, I feel like I'm being like gaslit because I grew up in a place where loads and loads of different communities lived in very close quarters and lived very happily with each other. That's the thing that being from Croydon taught me. And that's the thing that living in London taught me. You know, I, used to, I lived in Shepherd's Bush for years and I lived on a road. Truly, there was a mosque on one corner and a church on another corner. If you wrote that in a TV show, people would say you were laying it on thick. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and I sort of, it's a thing that I think in some ways connects me to where my family is from. Like my family is from Kerala in India and Kerala, it has huge amounts of fascinating diversity because of, because it was on this kind of shipping routes, you know, Vasco da Gama went there, you know, this, this, all these sorts of like history of people coming in and out of Kerala in religious terms, you know, India is a Hindu country. Kerala has a huge Hindu population, but it also has a big Christian population. It also has a massive Muslim population. It also has a Jewish population. There is a synagogue in uh, Kuchin in Kerala. Like it's a place that can't help but wear its diversity extremely openly. And and I and I think that when I see conservative politicians saying that multiculturalism is impossible, I think no, that's what Croydon taught me. Yeah. And I guess what you're referring to in terms of politicians in particular, the likes of Suella Braverman and Rishi Sunak, 
Suella Braverman in particular, who, you know, as we speak, has just been um, sacked as the Home Secretary. What has this ride been like with those two politicians in particular? You've been like hugely scathing of them, but also very entertaining in terms of perhaps having some cultural crossover or understanding, but also pointing out that just because you come from an ethnic minority doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to um, govern in their interest like what has what has the ride been like for you with the, with those two in particular it is so strange and i'm still trying to wrap my mind around the idea that i will not vote for the first british asian prime minister i think if you told me when i was a kid that this would come to pass i don't think i would have ever been able to wrap my mind around that around that idea but like, it shouldn't matter who the person is that's speaking. It's what they're saying that's objectionable. And that's why I think the important thing to do is refute the ideas and not descend too much into personal kind of ad hominem attacks. Instead, focus on the ideas and the things that are being said, because ultimately racism is racism. That's the intellectual thing that I understand. But also, yeah, come on, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? like come on. Like I, I don't I like I know that it shouldn't matter, but it hurts me way more. Like I feel so weird when I see, you know, when I see Sunak, Braverman, Pretty Patel, Kemi, uh, James Cleverly, when I see all those people, it feels weird. <laughs> Maybe the Asian community, we have to talk this whole thing up as a victory for representation. Like we're now we're doing racism. We've done it all. We've conquered it all, Jimmy. <laughs> We've got the great offices of state. We're saying racist things. We've got total representation. What phrase are you going to go for as the one that kind of best speaks to your idea of home? Well, the phrase that I'm going to go for is um, cucumber town. There's a string of like weird phrases from Malayalam, which is what the language that my family speaks, is the language of Kerala. And there are a string of phrases that my grandparents used to say. And like, increasingly, it's becoming difficult to know if these are phrases or these are things my grandfather made up. W one of them is um, if somebody's trying to rip you off, you say, what is this, Cucumber Town? And... I'm going to be honest with you, Jimmy. I don't have a clue why that is the case. There's no, no one has a sense of why it is. But if someone is trying to rip you off, you just go, hey, what is this? Cucumber Town? And there's various phrases like, uh, in the kingdom of no noses, the man with half a nose is king, which basically means when everybody's shit, if you're slightly less shit, you become the best. Oh, and then when somebody's like tired, you say, well, his wind's gone. Like that's like that. That's the expression. Like his wind has gone, but the my, the ultimate one is cucumber town, and I can't find it anywhere on the internet. Maybe if there are like Malayalis listening, they'll be able to tell me if this is something that's like exists outside of our family. But what is this cucumber town? Was it was it your grandfather? You said yeah. It's my grandfather's expression. I spent my whole life really trying to decipher what it could possibly mean. I don't think I've ever like eaten a cucumber and thought I felt really shortchanged by this. <laughs> like I, I, I like cucumber. I, I've never, I've never eaten a cucumber and thought this thing really ripped me off. 
Welcome back to Where's Home Really with me, Jimmy Famarewa, where my guest is Croydon's own Nish Kumar. Hello, Jimmy. Let's hit on your person. I'm really intrigued about this one because we've had people suggest people from their family, friends. Sometimes it's a fictional person that kind of, you know, means a lot speaks to the forming of identity and home but who are you going to go for who's your person i don't want to choose between uh my partner or uh, a family member so i'm going to pick a fictional character in order to not upset everybody (laughs) so the person that i'm (laughs) the person that i'm gonna pick is homer simpson (laughs) That's amazing. That's amazing. Because to me, nothing says home more than The Simpsons just being on the television. That was the soundtrack of me growing up. Like, that's the soundtrack of me being at home. And it's still the soundtrack of me being at home now. Yesterday, uh, Amy was like, let's watch it. Should we put Simpsons on? Is it like is there a particular nostalgia about it as well? Like where does it situate you? Like if there's a particular episode on, or is there a kind of a rhythm or like a routine that you remember from childhood or even different phases of life? What does it evoke mostly for you? Well, it sort of evokes like a lot of time, you know, my social life when I was sort of eleven to thirteen, before the BBC bought the rights to the simpsons i used to go to my friend matt's house every friday like most fridays because he had sky so my social life was you go around matt's house watch two episodes of the simpsons and then play goldeneye on the nintendo 64 for about six hours and it was a lot of my like life at school was discussing what our favorite episode was what the best series is and a lot of my home life you know a lot of my life at home was me and my brother watching the Simpsons. so it's almost like there's like different phases like when i was very young it's me and my brother just watching the simpsons and there are things that me and my brother say to each other now that are just things from the simpsons that we've just sort of forgotten about and you know those shows just become a part of your personality like i'm really not surprised at the impact matthew perry dying has had such a profound impact on people of a certain age because it was 25 weeks a year you would do, and, and then friends was just on and on and on all the time those people are part of like fabric of your childhood when you love a tv show it isn't just that you watch a tv show it's that the experience of talking about that tv show becomes part of the building blocks of friendships and relationships with family members. Yeah. You've wisely not chosen a family member, as we've established as your person. But I wonder, you know, look, we all talk about this this thing with immigrant parents and this idea that you pursue certain careers to, I think you put it in a previous interview, make yourself kind of bulletproof or socially indispensable by being a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant or whatever but yeah what was what was that period like where it was like oh I'm really going to do this and how, how has the journey been since particularly I'm really interested when you've had kind of Twitter trolls coming at you and right-wing newspapers counting how many, you know, anti-Tory jokes there are on the MASH report. And 
there was just this real feeling that there was such a target on your back for a long time that you kind of seemed to represent for some people um, some completely out of proportion sense of woke or whatever it was. Like, I, I yeah, I'd, I'd love to know both what your parents thought when you decided to, you know, focus and do comedy and also what their reaction has been when when things have kind of spilled over in this way. They were very shocked and they were very confused about me doing comedy and it took them a while. I think it was only when I started doing work for the BBC that they sort of were like, oh, I think this is actually a sort of viable career. People of our upbringing and generation, you know, do constantly talk about like how baffled our parents were by our career choices you know and i do still think that it's like that it is just it just comes from a place of fear because it was like oh you know you should if you do these jobs then you can't be kicked out what we learned from the windrush scandal is they can kick you out like they can those are people that were brought here to rebuild the country after the second world war and they just kicked their kids out We've learned something like valuable about, you know, systemic racism and systemic prejudice, you know. But in any case, they were they were very spooked by it, as all our parents were. They slowly over time came round to it. I think in terms of the trolls, I think one of the great blessings is my father is very tech averse. So he doesn't see a lot of the stuff. Yeah, 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 he, did. yeah. he didn't see a lot yeah. of the stuff. But I think it, it definitely stressed them out a lot at points. But also, I don't think they're particularly surprised about it because nothing that's nothing about me as a 38-year-old is not predictable if you met me at 16. I was like a school debater and... James Acaster once said, you should tell everybody that as often as possible, because I think it's the only thing, it's the best way to understand what you're like as a person and a comedian. And so that was the thing I was good at school. And then the other thing, I was in trouble at school constantly for being a gobshite, basically. Was that a bit of an outlier in terms of your family? Were your parents baffled or bemused or was that was that an expression of your home in some ways was that were you kind of taught and emboldened to ask questions or was this something that you kind of just innately had I mean you know I'm imagining you know getting in trouble at school and you know I, I don't know if my mum would necessarily want to hear about how much of a point I had or how right I was there would just been an onus on don't get in trouble kind of thing but yeah what was it like for you do you feel like that was something that you kind of had been taught by your family or was it kind of very much just you? Here's the kind of interesting thing I think about my parents is that they sort of taught us to speak up for ourselves. Then when I got in trouble at school, they were like, what's all this speaking up for yourself shit? Well, I, I think like we're very close, my parents and me and my brother. And I think the interesting thing about my parents is that they gave me and my brother so much of our like values and the way that we are as people and then spent the next <laughs> decade or so going, why are these two like this? <laughs> I, I, and I wonder if like, if that's just what parenting is, it's like building these brains and then being surprised, you know, like there was a real sense of like Victor Frankenstein and his creature, like about me, me and my parents. My parents love comedy. My whole family loves comedy. When I was growing up, we watched like old British sitcoms, you know, like Only Fools and Horses, Faulty Towers, like all of these things. Like we watched so much comedy. 
And when I was 13, my parents took me to see Goodness Gracious Me live. Like we all went as a family. So much of like the currency in my family is like being funny. The thing that I should definitely say about the like trolling stuff is like, I had to have a word with my mum to say, don't respond to any of it. There is an absolute zero tolerance policy of any external criticism of their children. They will, they can criticize me and my brother as much as they want to, but there is absolutely no tolerance of it. So I had to say to my mum, like, you can't slag these people off. And the first time I did question time, it's with Piers Morgan, and he kind of tried to start a sort of Twitter beef on the way in. And my dad came with me to question time. <laughs> As backup. Yeah. Amazing. I, I'm not Amazing. joking, Jimmy. I'm Amazing. genuinely not joking. But he, he, my dad was there because he was like, I, I'll need to be there. The last stand-up show that I did, the story of that stand-up show is about this like charity gig that I did where someone threw a bread roll at me. And afterwards, my dad was like, I wish I'd been there. Because at one point, I was going to, I was actually going to take my dad and my dad was like, I wish I'd been there. And I was like, I am thrilled that you weren't there because there is no way my dad wouldn't have ended up in a fist fight with somebody. How do these things weigh on you when when there is this feeling that you've spoken about before that that the the targeting in the in the kind of aftermath of the MASH report's initial cancellation and there was such a focus on you from these people saying, you know, outright racist things on social media. Has there ever been a point at which it's kind of that it has really weighed on you or affected you or made you kind of, I don't know, want to kind of not quit, but just kind of reconsider and just think, is it worth it? Like, are there any sort of particularly low moments? Well, it, listen, it did weigh heavily enough on me Um that like I, I did ha I do have post-traumatic stress disorder from the death threats that kind of happened in the kind of aftermath of the sort of charity incident becoming news. Like I've had trauma therapy and stuff like that. And I, and I've talked about this before, so I'm, this is not, I'm not, I'm quite happy to talk about it uh, and talk about it quite openly. There was a, a sense of how dare you say this, this is not your country. Like we can all read between the lines in the way that it was covered. And the thing that's hard is to some extent, my parents were right when they said there will be a backlash to you saying this kind of stuff. My therapist has often said the problem is that your parents were right. You learned that they were correct through experience. <laughs> but, you know, I also sort of I, I also do see in proportion, you know, at the end of the day, we're writing jokes about the news. Like there are people who are risking their like physical safety in service of ideals and in an attempt to make things better so you know you have to see whatever's happening to you in perspective and you know i think i've always had a pretty healthy sense of my own insignificance in the grand scheme of things which i think is a very important thing when you're a comedian i think that's essential we started off with you unbuttoning after the buffet and i want to return to the idea of food and what your plate's going to be what you're going to go for this is the hardest this is the toughest one this is the toughest one this is easily the toughest one i'll tell you the ones that it almost was and then wasn't and what like it, there's a specific fish curry kerala fish curry that my grandmother makes that i feel very connected to and there's also Unfortunately, and listen, I'd like a lot of 
fantastic food. I like a lot of high-end dining, but I can't not say Nando's here. <laughs> I love that. No, I'm with you. I love it. I wish me and my partner in some ways were different people, but the reality is a huge cornerstone of our relationship has been going for a Nando's. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and I don't like the extent to which a kind of high street chicken shop is a kind of cornerstone of our relationship, but I would also be lying if I said it wasn't the case. But in, in the interests of not purely advertising Fernando uh, and his chicken outlets, the food that I'll pick is just a plate of dry fried okra. And that's the thing that I think is like that. The smell of frying okra is the smell of me going home because ever since I was a kid, I love, love, love okra. I love it. Uh, I think it's delicious. And I, whenever, still now when I go home, my mum will fry okra and I'll walk through the door and smell okra frying in my house oh i love that so much was it always the case that you that you absolutely loved it because it's always interesting when people uh, sometimes have a period of like teenagedom where you kind of you know you want to assim assimilate in every aspect of your life and you're kind of maybe not appreciating the food that you're getting at home and that comes from your culture or heritage but was that always the case for you did you always love that fried okra Loved it. Loved, always loved Indian food. Always, always have, always will. It's also, I should say, in my blood, along with, let's not beat around the bush, quite a lot of cholesterol, because my grandfather actually ran Indian restaurants in Leicester. Like that was our family business. Were you, were you kind of, did you go up, did you visit them? Did you get to see that up close and personal then? And did you have a sense of, yeah, because I always find those fascinating places um, we've had a number of people on the show who either grew up partly in restaurants or whose parents ran some sort of food business. And that that as being business, but also, you know, extension of the home and the different dishes that are served in this kind of commercial space and eaten at home. Did you get a chance to see it up close and personal? Did you go and visit? Yeah, my first birthday party was in my grandfather's restaurant. And so I have like dim memories. The pl the actual thing I have most specific memories of is the greasy spoon that he ran. That was the last thing he did before he retired. He ran like a proper English greasy spoon, which again, I cannot, that to me seems a real victory of cultural assimilation. If you can come as an Indian and end up running like a proper like greasy spoon restaurant. Just to finish up, something that I that I often ask is the ways in which whatever our kind of chosen home or ancestry or cultural heritage or however we wish to define it has impacted the UK and the wider world. And I wonder, yeah, for you um, in terms of Kerala in particular, and I know that you've talked about its beauty as a as a place and as an environment and, and also obviously the things that are grown there. But I wonder culturally, what are the things that you think of when you think of the way that people would be like, oh, okay, that is something that I can point to as Carolyn influence or impact. Definitely, like, our food is unreal. Like, it's unreal. And it's also the, the sort of pre prevalence of, like, 
coconut milk in the cuisine i think it sort of starts to build a bridge between indian food and southeast asian food like if, if, if the first time i had a laksa like i remember thinking god this almost feels like a curry from kerala and they've gone hard on tourism so lots of people like when i was growing up in early to mid 90s most of the indian kids at my school didn't know where kerala was you know and i think sort of progressively because of the tourism people have become very aware of it and we're very hyper literate people so there's you know there's loads of like we just churn out amazing scientists and engineers and i guess the occasional anomalous stand-up comedian i, I will say that i did a diwali gig a couple of weeks ago in trafalgar square and it was an all south asian lineup and four of us had malayali heritage so maybe now, having <laughs> produced scientists and engineers, we're, we're, we're now on the verge of moving into uh, comedy of the arts. Nish Kumar, thank you so much for your time. That was wonderful, and it's been great to learn a little bit more about where you come from. Thank you, Jimmy. It was an absolute pleasure. I am absolutely grinning from ear to ear. That was fantastic. I'm such a huge fan of Nish. I think he's such a thoughtful, funny, interesting kind of commentator on politics and everything else. And that was just really great. It was fantastic to just hear a little bit more about what it's like to be in the eye of the storm, to kind of have, you know, Twitter trolls or ex-trolls as it were come after you. I absolutely loved that his dad came along when he was on Question Time. <laughs> for backup in case Piers Morgan was going to kick off. And I just loved hearing, you know, about his, you know, love for Carolyn culture, Carolyn cuisine, and, you know, just him talking about the smell of fried okra just had me absolutely there. It was, it was great. And I just can't wait to see what Nish does next because he's one of my favourite comics. So that's all for this week's episode of Where's Home Really with me, Jimmy Famarewa. It's been wonderful recording this series. We've had so many amazing, hilarious and inspiring stories and it would be a shame to have missed any of them. So please do go back and check out the archive on your preferred podcast platform. There's fascinating stories from the likes of Andy Oliver and Corinne Bailey-Ray, Nadia Hussain and boxer Amir Khan, among many others. And do join me next week for a fascinating guest who just happens to be a world-renowned chef and television presenter. And don't forget to give Where's Home Really a follow on your favourite podcast platform and leave us a review. Oh, and also check out our lovely new website, wheresomereally.com, where you can find our whole catalogue of conversations plus some additional interesting little tidbits. From Bottom Moment Listen, this has been Where's Home Really, hosted by me, Jimmy Famarewa. The producers are Tayo Popula and Aidan Judd. The executive producers for Podomo are Jake Chudnow and Matt White. And for Listen is Kelly Redmond. Until next time.